what is the thing that I say? Yep, here we go. Hey, 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 hi, hello. That's it. Hey, hi, hello, my creepy lovelies. Welcome back to the creepy cryptid crypt. Sorry, it's been a long day. I also forgot to write that part in this part of the notes. Uh, Dr. Manhattan here to help me wrap up the next two ripersodes. Maybe. Whatever it takes. <laughs> We're not sure. It's been quite the journey to get here. So uh, I'm at 24 pages of notes that were read in the last two ripersodes. There are 40 pages total. Yay. It's dedication, folks. That's what that is. <laughs> so now we're at the point in the ripersode where... We're going to talk about suspects and discuss, like, H.H. Holmes and why people originally thought and still think that he is a suspect and is, in fact, Jack the Ripper. Um, I'd like to bring us back to talking about our victims real quick. We've got seven total. Emma Smith, Martha Tabram, Marianne Nichols, a.k.a. Polly Nichols, uh, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly, and Francis Cole. Um, now there are a lot of people, as I've said in the last couple episodes, who think that Emma Smith and Francis Cole aren't actually victims of Jack the Ripper, but I think they are, so fuck off. And, uh, without further ado, I will introduce Jack the Ripper, like some of the more popular Jack the Ripper suspects. I missed one, and so Dr. Manhattan will chime in on that one. Um, so we've got Charles Cross, Walter Sickert, Aaron Kosminski, uh, Montague John Druitt, uh, James Maybrick, Prince Albert Edward Victor, H.H. Uh, Holmes, as I've said, and then there's, what is this man's name, the sailor man? Carl Fagenbaum. Fagenbaum. I found that wrong, but it's totally fine. Fagenbaum. He's a monster, so he doesn't deserve to have his name said correctly. Also, he's likely dead. Oh, no, he's definitely dead. He was executed mm. many years ago, fortunately. Perfect. Um, so I'll go through all of mine up until H.H. Holmes, and then you can tell us about Carl, and then we'll dip into H.H. Holmes. Okay. All right, so a lot of these are going to be fast and furious because I think there's probably been over 50 fucking uh, Ripper suspects in total, probably more. So some of this data is really detailed. Some of it is really high level. Just fucking bear with me. If you don't like it, don't listen. Um, so Charles Cross was a suspect because he was the one who found Marianne Nichols' body on his way to work. And after alerting the police, he just like went to work because he was late. Uh, and if you recall... During um, the Inquisition in her murder, <laughs> lawyers were like, so you weren't going to tell the cops that, like, her neck was severed? And he was like, I didn't, didn't fucking didn't see it. It was dark. Also, I was late to work. Um, and so the police were kind of like, kind of looked into him a little bit, but never had enough to charge him. Um, but he definitely was a very big suspect in at least Marianne Nichols' murder. Um, it doesn't seem like there was anything to tie him to any of the other murders, quite frankly, outside of the location in which he worked. Um, so that one's kind of a meh, maybe, highly unlikely, but there you go. I mean, his, his route to work was 
near three of the murders altogether, but still. Yes. There still wasn't a lot to say. No. This was the guy. Well, that... The, the geography of the murders is large. It's sure. overrun and overpopulated, so... There's that. Um, so now we will talk about Walter Sickert, a man born of English and German descent, an artist who was rumored to have uh, been painting and sketching Ripper victims. And so obvious people were like, ah, yes, you're painting, you're drawing them. Obviously you're the Ripper. Oh, I missed a vent. Sorry. Um, which is not true. So after reading, like I read three dissertations on this particular suspect, which is a lot for me to read on one fucking suspect, even though this is a bigger, bigger story. Uh, he's not, he's, he's not Jack the Ripper. He was not Jack the Ripper. So he was an artist. He was unfaithful to his wife. Um, it, there's no proof though that he painted or sketched the Ripper victims. And what they are potentially confusing this with was his artwork of the Camden Town murder, which occurred in September of 1907. Um, and that murder was likely a copycat of Jack the Ripper because the victim was also a sex worker brutally murdered in her bed. But he was portraying this murder that happened after Jack the Ripper. He didn't do Marianne Chapman, Catherine Eddowes, Polly Nichols. He didn't do any of that artwork. It's all a rumor. There was also a whole chunk about like, oh, well, he had a secret studio down where the bodies were found. No, he didn't. It's not... There is a lot of leeway in being able to speculate a whole lot here and put your own theories and make people think that they are a fact, even if you don't have anything to back that up. So, he was a suspect, and it's just, it doesn't make sense. Um, yeah. And so, I should have made more coffee. Aaron Kaminsky. Kaminsky? Something. Um, he was identified by a witness as the Ripper, but the same witness ended up recanting, saying he didn't want to testify against a fellow Jew, which is was kind of like a weird thing. Um, and he did leave. He did live in Whitechapel, and was reported to have a strong hatred toward women and homicidal tendencies. He actually was committed to an insane asylum in March of 1889, which means he couldn't have been Jack because we still have Francis Cole's murder in 1891. Um, or he was Jack the Ripper and Francis was not a Ripper victim. And there's this whole thing in this case called the McNaughton Memoranda, uh, where one of the detectives from the case like embellishes a whole bunch of stuff and says, ah, yes. Jack sent these things directly to me, and blah, blah, blah. I was communicating directly with him, and it was just this vast, embellished story. But in, in this part of the memoranda, Kaminsky is noted, and it says that they think he became insane due to his vices, which I don't think really um, makes sense, because vices, they were talking about, you know, drug use and alcoholism and you know with Jack being a blitz attacker like you really kind of have to be in control of your mind and your body especially to be that smart with those 15 minute police walking their beats and everybody you know being out and about and people seeing a lot of stuff like 
You've got to be smart. You have to be in control. You definitely can't be drunk. Um, and it just, it, I mean, the only way that it would make sense is it would have been easier to, like, pretend to be drunk to get victims to lower their guard and get closer. But it's... It's a tough sell. Especially the way that victims were killed just doesn't... Uh-uh. Just doesn't really seem to add up. Yeah, so that one's a... That one's a no. Um, then we have this Montague-drawn John Druitt human. Um, and he was a suspect... Ah, okay. That's the note that I wrote. I said, how this man became a suspect outside of the fact that he disappeared after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly is fucking beyond me. All it takes. Yep. Super nice guy. From a respectable family. He was a doctor. His dad passed away in 1885. His mom lost her shit because of that, so she was committed to an insane asylum six months after. He was active in lots of clubs and lots of sports. Um, there is a theory that he was fired from his job as a doctor, and that coupled with the death of his dad and his mom losing her shit, like kind of kicked things off. And that's when he became Jack the Ripper. But the timeline's still not right. Um, did it make him clinically depressed? Probably. It just meh. I don't know. I, I think that Jack would have wanted to keep like a lower profile. I don't think he would have been like as prominent, as involved in so many clubs and sports because then there's more people to excuse me, recognize you, the more involved you are with that stuff. Um, anyway, like I said, clinically depressed, became too much to bear. He committed suicide in December of 1888. Quotes. I'm doing air quotes because um, he put rocks in his pockets and jumped in the Thames, which in my brain is a very, like, mafia gang style killing. I don't... I didn't do any research on the statistics of the number of people who commit suicide that way. I imagine it to be very low. It just struck me as odd. Um, usually men commit suicide with like a gun or in another violent manner, putting rocks in your pockets and just jumping into the Thames seems fairly uh, tame. Also, I feel like you're, it's really hard to drown yourself. Like your body... Rex. Your body like fights and fights and fights and fights and fights. So if you can swim, it's just, your body's just not going to let you do that. Um, anyway, oh, also, there was a lot of evidence in what I was reading that speculated that he was gay. And that's why he was fired from his job. And there's like no police records of his suicide. And the suicidal tendencies did run in his family. So his mom and his sister would also later commit suicide. So I just think that there are too many things there that it just automatically eliminate him as a suspect in my mind, at least as a viable suspect. Um, I mean, if we go down the doctor theory, like, yeah, he fits like a small piece of the shoe, but the rest of it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Whole shoe or nothing but the shoe. Yeah, I was going to say the pinky and the shoe, but that just... It just didn't make sense. It's been a long day. Um, and here now we have James Maybrick, and I'm not, I'm not sure how. Okay, no, let's back up a half second. I know how he became a suspect. 
I think that it's total fucking bullshit, but let me just tell you about it. So James Maybrick was murdered by his cheating wife via arsenic poisoning in 1889. What a way to go. Good for you, girl. Yeah. She was the one cheating. Sounded different the way you presented it. You're right, it did. But she was the one who was cheating and she wanted to be with her lover, so she fucking murdered him with arsenic. Um, but the only reason he became a ripper suspect is that this individual said that she found his diary in fucking 1990. And so the diary was found. Supposedly it was also where he claims to be Jack the Ripper in this diary, but there's nothing to validate that it's A, James Maybrick's diary, B, Jack the Ripper's diary. And I just, I've looked at the, the pages. It's just the handwriting is different. The tone and the structure of the diary pages are totally different than the Jack letters. It just doesn't fucking add up. Also, if you just randomly found this in fucking, like, 1990, there's too much time to have passed for somebody to not have found it and brought it to light. It's just very fucking fishy. Mm -hmm. So I think we can rule Mr. Maybrick out. Um... Which brings us to the the fun royal theory that a lot of people like to speculate on. Um, While he had the means and the power to commit these crimes, uh, you know, he was out of the country for a lot of the murders. um, But also there were a lot of reports that he had really low IQ. So he was like the dumb royal that really had to be monitored very closely. And who was this? Uh, Prince Albert Edward Victor. Duke of Clarence and Avondale. Yep, yep. Um, so I just, I don't... Well, and another delayed, you know, suspect, because this didn't come down until the 60s. Uh-huh. So. So I think in the 60s, it was like a fun theory to toss around. To be like, ooh, the royal family's involved, because I do think they are involved in some shit. But I don't think he was, A, ever alone long enough to have committed these things. B... Everybody would fucking know him in the country. See, I don't think he had a large enough IQ to accomplish any of those things. Well, and he also wasn't, for the most part, seemingly in London at the time of the murders. No, he was out of the country doing diplomatic bullshit. Um, And those are the suspects that I have that are not... H.H. Holmes, and I don't want to get into this next piece because it kind of wraps up the suspect before H.H. H. Holmes' piece. So if you want to tell us about Mr. Carl, do Mr. not eat that. Mr. Carl. Don't eat that. So, this one is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember pop quiz from the previous episodes, a lot of the eyewitnesses that saw this man with women shortly before they were slaughtered often described the man as a sailor. And Mr. Feigenbaum was in fact a sailor for a merchant that frequented the White Chapel area during the years of the murders. Yeah, they have those docks right there, right? Yeah, they have those docks. Um, So there is that. He ended up in America uh, in the 1890s and ended up being... Convicted and executed of murdering someone there. 
Mm-hmm. Um, his lawyer is the one that claims that before he was executed, he confessed to being involved in murders in the Whitechapel area. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those, if you really want to dig into the, I guess, the different theories and possibilities of what what and who Ripper was. It's there. It's a stretch, but it's there. He was in the area at the time. Fits the, fits the look, fits the type of person, but... Yeah. yeah I don't know. We're going to have to put that toy outside. He keeps eating with us. I do think, though, like, if you're already, like, sentenced to death and you're being convicted of some other murders, wouldn't you just, you know, take some extra clout? Be like, yeah, I did more. Deuces. Like, a lot of, I don't know, I feel like a lot of serial killers do that, but I digress. Um, So with all of these suspects being, you know, very lightly reviewed, and as I've said, you know, there's a ton more. And there are hundreds more fucking theories, but I honestly don't think we'll ever really know who Jack was with certainty. Um, if you want to do all of the reading, please use uh, casebook.org. They've literally documented everything, given every single link. It's very thorough. It's very well done. Um, so if you kind of wanted to have a one-stop shop for all things Jack, Jack the Ripper, use that link. Um but I guarantee you, you're not. All you're gonna do is spend your time reading stuff by people who are either embellishing, not being 100% honest with their facts and their data, and they speculate about some, while interesting, very crazy things. So, if you go down that rabbit hole, caveat that with most of it might be made up. Um, there was. There was a guy named Chapman who was also a suspect, but I dug into him a little bit and he was actually a bluebeard killer. So that meant that he like killed his wives for money. So that it's like the male version of a black widow. Um, and when he got bored of them, he was like, I'm taking your money, poisoning you, killing you out. Um, so he wasn't, it didn't fit Jack's style and motive. Thankfully, you know, Chapman was hanged in 1903. So don't have to worry about him anymore. Also, it's been hundreds of years. Gotcha. Um, and then, you know, there are a bunch of other rippers that I told you guys I would tell you about. I, After doing a little bit more research, some of them are classified in my big book of serial killers as rippers, but they didn't fit into the criteria. There were also... <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven who were really interesting and I thought deserved their own episodes. So those will be Ripperstone follow-ups. Also, I was tired of working on this particular item. It's a lot. (laughs) It was a lot. Even in 2022. uh, um, So, yeah. Uh, there is another Ripper who does kind of fit that profiling, um, profile, but he was hanged, um, like way, way, way 
in like I think the 15th century or something. So he had a similar style of killing. So unless we really do get reincarnated by like evil spirits, be impressive. Yeah, right. Um, the reincarnated Ripper. Yeah, reincarnated Ripper. So there's that. Uh, but to recap, my personal Jack the Ripper theories are as follows. Jack and a group of friends jumped Emma Smith. When she died, his friends bailed. Jack was able to fully be his homicidal self. He got all the way to Mary Jane Kelly, where he finally had the time and the privacy to fully carry out what he had been trying to do since Marianne Nichols. And after that murder with Mary Jane Kelly, he was um, satisfied for a bit, but then got the itch again. And, you know, he was interrupted during his murder of Francis Cole. Uh, the other theory I have is that Jack the Ripper is actually an underground cult, a collective, so to speak. It's not just one person. I think it's a, a small circle of deeply religious men, or deeply closeted men, um, who thought that they were cleansing the streets of sex workers for the better of society, or perhaps out of their own sexual incompetence. Uh, I think this kind of explains the different variations in who the women were last seen with and the deviations in the knives and the size and the lengths and stuff, as well as the manner in which they were killed. Um, I think with Marianne Kelly, whoever was assigned to her was extra, extra pissed because that one was like overkill, overkill, overkill. Um, and I think that if he was deeply religious, he had actually been attracted to her and that's kind of what spiked the overkill. Um, I also think that this theory is more viable because it would have been a hell of a walk to fucking kill Elizabeth and then get over to fucking kill Catherine Eddowes. Now, he didn't get to complete those as much as he did with Mary Jane Kelly, but it's still, the time frames are tight. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of cops. Like, it just doesn't Makes sense. Um, there also would have been a waxing moon that night, so some of the streets would have been partially illuminated by the moon. Um, although, yeah, not enough to like fully identify someone, but still enough to kind of see if those streets weren't as well lit. Uh, but you know, the moon illuminated it enough to be like, ah, yes, that man is covered in blood. That's not good. Um, but I also think that the cult liked the idea of some tension, so they left those clues on purpose to perpetuate the Jewish butcher theory. Because remember I said anti-Semitism was pretty rampant over in Whitechapel. <coughs> and so after all the reading, it looks and sounds like it really wouldn't have taken a whole lot to start some shit out there in that time period. Sorry. Final theory. Jack the Ripper was one very wealthy doctor who worked at the London Hospital, which was close and in the Whitechapel district. It was near a lot of the crime scenes. Um, I think he became a doctor out of morbid curiosity. And then he started to realize performing surgery was like sexually arousing. So he started trying surgery outside of the hospital on women who were less likely to be missed. Um, I do think he was a well-off man because if it wasn't the cult theory, he would have needed access to horses or a buggy and a cart to get around and, you know, do all of these things and not to be seen by any of the constables on their patrols. Cause those are really tight timeframes. Mm. Um, I also think that he started to get sloppy 
with the bodies after one of the police surgeons suggested that Jack had medical knowledge. So he was trying to like throw them off, even though he totally knew where all his organs were, how to get them out, etc. Um, and I think that he was actually a, a smart, like well-educated man, but he wrote those letters in the, the postcard in a way so that it would, yep, yep. So those are my theories. Pausing for questions. Did we cover all the suspects? I'm about to talk about H.H. Holmes. Okay. Which... So there was this whole TV show, and I can't remember what it's called, but it was basically like an in-depth dive into investigating to see whether or not H.H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper. Conclusion, it wasn't, but it ended in a very interesting way. But there were still a lot of people who thought that they were one and the same. But also, after doing some research into H.H. Holmes, his most of... Words. Most of what is surviving about his murders is, like, also embellished. And there are a lot of things that people talk about that he didn't actually do, which I think is interesting. Um, so yeah. Um, 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 um. So the interesting part about the H.H. Holmes, Jack the Ripper TV show connection thing is that a guy who said he was related to H.H. Holmes gave his DNA to be tested against the DNA they still had from the Ripper case, uh, and it wasn't Jack the Ripper. I take an issue with that. I don't know how long DNA stays viable over 200 years. You don't have chain of custody. Like, while I am sure they are not the same, I just feel like the DNA testing was probably not a good route because I don't think it would have been a viable sample. Anyway, mm -hmm. that's all. Uh, so, let us talk about the human trash that is H.H. Holmes, a.k.a. Herman Mudgett, the liar, cheater, master manipulator, and predator of the Chicago World Fair, 1893. So, um, Herman Mudgett was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. He was the child of Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. Uh, some reports say that they were descended from the first settlers of that town in New Hampshire, which was an interesting thing. Um, his dad was often strict, and Holmes was often bullied as a child. He did claim, though, that when he was younger, he had a fear of skeletons, so some children from his class like forced him to go touch one at a local doctor's office. But instead of being scared after he touched it, he was like fascinated with it. But I think that's a fucking lie he told to make people, like, either be afraid of him or feel bad that he grew up being bullied. But I digress. Uh, at 16 years old, he graduated from Phillips Exeter Academy and started taking teaching jobs in his hometown. And then uh, July 4th of 1878. Stop. He marries uh, Clara Lovering, or Loving, in Alton, and they have a son who's born February 3rd, 1888. 
in Loudoun, New Hampshire. And Holmes decides at this point he needs more education to better care for his family. So he enrolls at the University of Vermont in Burlington, which made me think of Burlington Coat Factory, which made me think of that episode of The Office. Um, it does every time I read that note. Uh, but Holmes is 18 at this point, and he hated school in Burlington at the Burlington Coat Factory. <laughs> uh, so he left a year into his studies, which brings us to about 1882, and takes a break um, for a little bit, but not long before he decides to enroll at the University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery, which he graduates from in June of 1884. Now... Obviously, medical school was not as long back then, but he did graduate, so. Oh, we learned some shit, mm -hmm. surgically and whatnot. Are you happy now, diva? Mm-hmm. Uh, while he was going to school, he worked at the anatomy lab under a professor, William James Herdman, who at the time was the chief anatomy instructor at the school. And would you like to know how they obtained their cadavers for medical school at this point in time in the world? From murders. Probably. Uh, they mostly did grave robbing. Classy. Mm -hmm. um, and they also would rob extra graves to sell those cadavers to other medical schools. Mm -hmm. Extra. They were already doing it. I understand. So they were doing it for the anatomy lab at the school he was going to, mm -hmm. but they were also selling some of those cadavers to other medical schools yeah. as a way to turn a profit. Um... And at one point, Holmes had this brilliant idea that he would take out life insurance policies on the cadavers and then tell the insurance companies that they died in accidents and then he would get the insurance payout. It's actually, it's actually pretty brilliant. Mm -hmm. At least at that point in time. Um, so that he's doing all that. Holmes gets to a point in his relationship where he starts beating the shit out of Clara like all the time. So at some point she moves home, takes their son... Um, and they're estranged, but they never officially divorce. So I just want you to keep that little nugget in your brain there. Uh, Holmes is, you know, out of medical school. His wife is somewhere else. So he's like, cool, I'm going to go move to New York. So he's in New York for a bit, but people start to claim that they had seen him with a young boy. And then they stopped seeing him with the young boy. And so Holmes would tell people that he was caring temporarily for the boy, but, you know, then he had returned home. Um, so there was that. And something that you need to know if you don't already know about Holmes is that he is manipulative, but he's also very polished and smart and charming. So there was no investigation into the disappearance of the boy, and there was no follow-through to make sure that what Holmes had told people was actually true. So he just got to leave New York, no suspicion, no follow-up, no investigation, scot-free. Perfect. He then ends up in Philly, where he takes a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital, but he hated that, so he quit. Uh, and then he got a job at a drugstore. Now, it is rumored that while he was working there, a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased there. Holmes, of course, denied any involvement and moved on to another state. This time he lands in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he met and married a Marta Belknap. Still married to Clara. 
He filed for divorce, citing infidelity on Clara's part, and surviving paperwork of the divorce shows us that Clara was never even fucking served with the papers. So she didn't know. And it was never finalized. Like, they just dismissed it in 1891. Um, The couple, Marta and Holmes, had a daughter born July 4th of 1889 in Inglewood, Chicago. Um, And he settled them in Wilmette, Chicago. Sorry. Where is Chicago? What state is that? Illinois. Thank you. For some reason, my brain thinks of Chicago as a state, which is wildly inaccurate. Nope. So he has his family in Wilmette, Illinois. He likes to stay in Chicago. So uh, at this point, reports say that he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes. And as he is in Illinois and Chicago, you know, he told people that that was his name. But Marta, wife number two, literally knew him as Herman. So. Um, somehow at some point in the midst of the name change, he sneaks off to Denver and marries Georgiana Yoke on January 17th in 1894. Now, that is before... Hold up. That's before the birth of his daughter. No, it's not. I can't do math. It's after the birth of his daughter. I apologize. Sorry, my brain went somewhere else. Uh, goes off to Denver, marries someone else, married three times, all at one time. I think he's very passionate about this particular He person. is, he is. Um, I can't just... So he has his estranged wife. He has Marta in Illinois. He has Georgiana in Denver. Somehow, they are all okay not living in the same house as him. And so he is spending all of his time in Chicago. And at some point, he comes across a drugstore owned by Elizabeth S. Holton at the northwest corner of South Wallace Ave in West 63rd Street. Um, He charmed them into giving him a job. And... uh, that there's Elizabeth and her husband, who was Dr. Horton, who actually was alive when all of this happened. A lot of reports in books and movies and stuff say that it was just Elizabeth and that he seduced her, which is not true. Um, and so they gave him a job because Holmes is charming, but also he and Dr. Horton went to the same medical school, so they were like school buddies. Um, I like how all it takes is some charm. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? Yeah. Ted Bundy, same shit. Um, He would confess to killing them both. He didn't. They both lived. A lot of the reports also say that he murdered them and took their drugstore. Didn't happen. He ended up buying a lot of property on the same street, across the street, and real close to them. Didn't kill them, though. Didn't steal their shit. Um, And he started construction in... 1887 for a two-story building with apartments on the second floor and shops on the first floor. And he was, you know, given fake names and promises and stealing all kinds of shit and running up credit with everybody at this point. And he's like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build this thing and when it gets built, like, I'm gonna pay you back and when, you know, it's gonna be great. Do you want to invest? And blah, blah, blah. These are all the things that I have. Fucking didn't do shit. So he did this really interesting thing where when people were coming to work on that property, 
and they would wrap up what they were working on, he would just not pay them. <sighs> and so at one point, he got sued by the steel and the architect company in 1888. I don't think he ever ended up paying on that, but there is record of that happening. Hmm. Um, so he's got two floors, hasn't paid anybody. Uh, in 1892, he adds floor three, which he tells investors he's going he's gonna to turn this whole thing into a hotel, floor two and floor three, for the upcoming World Fair. Brilliant. People have places to stay. World Fair is going to be across the street. It's going to be great. It was not great. Um, the structure was mostly completed towards the end of 1892. So it had three stories and a basement, ground floor, still a drugstore, I think. Uh, it was called and is called the Murder Castle, but the structure never had trapdoors or secret torture chambers or a maze. Um, there were some hidden rooms, but it had like stolen items or items that he got on credit and he didn't want people to come find and like take back from him. But nothing murdery or spooky or anything like that. Um... There was also a one-story factory on his lot, so it's not in the structure of what people call the Myrtle Castle, but it's it's nearby. And uh, he told people that he used it to bend glass, but a lot of people think that he used it to destroy evidence. And so that kind of leads to the, the portrayal of him having a furnace in his basement to burn bodies. So not accurate in any way, shape, or form. But I could see where that would come from. Um, thankfully, the structure was gutted by a fire after Holmes was arrested. And it was mostly rebuilt and used as a post office until 1938. Good job, fire. Uh, it was, that post office was destroyed at some point in a newer post office is in the general area. So we have our clarified background of who H.H. H. Holmes was. And now I'm going to move us into uh, his confirmed victims. So uh, we're going to start with his mistress, a Julia Smythe, who was the wife of a human called Ned Connor. And she had moved into Holmes's building and started working at the jewelry counter in his drugstore. So she moved into like floor two or three and she's working on floor one. Uh, they started to have an affair. Her husband found out. Um, and as a result, Ned just quit his job, left his wife, and moved. They had a daughter, Pearl. He left their daughter, too. He said bye. Ned was done. Mm -hmm. um, so Julia obviously got full custody of their daughter, Pearl, after this, and they kept staying at the hotel, and she continued her relationship with Holmes. But Pearl and Julia disappeared Christmas Eve of 1891. Uh, Holmes would later claim that Julia died during an abortion procedure, but even with his medical training, he wasn't familiar or qualified to carry a procedure out like that. And then when he was arrested, he said that he poisoned Pearl and they did find a partial skeleton that was likely a child's in his basement when they were raiding the property. And her dad was actually one of the key witnesses at his trial, which I thought was interesting. I don't know how that part would have made any sense, but... Um, and then, you know, we had... Following Julia was Emmeline Seagrand, who worked at the hotel of May 1892. She disappeared in December. Um, a lot of people speculated that she was pregnant. 
probably by Holmes and that she was a victim of another abortion he performed and she just died that way. Um, Emily Van Tassel also worked for Holmes and also vanished during this time frame. He sometime in this period of traveling, marrying a bunch of bitches, buying stuff on credit, never paying it back, being sued, building this giant building, had time to make friends with the carpenter who, you know, had a less than squeaky clean past, Mr. Benjamin Pizel, and they operated a lot of criminal enterprises together. So, <laughs> it's uh, just, <sighs> you, they can get away with it because there's not like one-stop shops for information, but it just kind of makes, it makes you, it, it feels like a movie. That makes sense. Like there's a lot going on. It doesn't really track how any of these things could have happened, but they definitely fucking happened. And you're just kind of sitting here like, how? How did nobody notice? How did these creditors not catch on? Also, what kind of documentation did the creditors or the people ask for when he was buying or, you know, getting these things loaned to him? That just seems strange to me that there was like no paperwork needed, but. It's the late 1800s, so I don't know. Um, so we're in uh, late 1890. Holmes is still married, three different women. Uh, his workers are, you know, disappearing, coning and out. He meets this actress, uh, Minnie Williams, and he offered her a job as a stenographer. She accepted. He charmed her into transferring the deed of her Fort Worth, Texas property to a man named Alexander Bond, who was just one of Holmes's many aliases. Uh, he, she holds out until about April, and she agrees. Holmes is, you know, also apparently qualified to be the notary to oversee this transaction, so he notarizes it. And... There, you know, they start dating all as well. Uh, Holmes would later sign that deed over to Pizel under the alias of Benton T. Lehman. Um, yeah, so there's that. So they're dating. They're telling everybody that they're married. They rent an apartment over in Lincoln Park. Minnie's sister, Annie, comes to stay. Uh, they stay until summer. In summer, like, I think it's July, she writes to her aunt saying that they're all going to go on a trip to Europe. But... Neither Minnie nor Annie are seen alive after July 5th. They're just gone. Um, just fucking gone. They are... Sorry, my, I am so tired. These are some other victims that were within the same time frame. So like after Minnie and Annie disappeared. Um, it's suspected that Holmes was the cause of their disappearances, but there was nothing to charge him with in these cases. They never found these people. Um, Dr. Roussier had an office on Holmes's property. Uh, Miss Kitty Kelly was the stenographer he hired after Annie disappeared. Sorry, Minnie disappeared. Uh, John G. Davis was a World Fair visitor. Anything could happen to him. The World Fair was just like crazy back then. Um, another man who was working for Holmes, Henry Walker, disappeared. For some reason, he insured his life to Holmes for $20,000. Uh, 
So we know Holmes took advantage of that insurance, insurance fraud. Um, Mid Milford Cole and a Lucy Burbank, and they found her checkbook in Holmes's house when they were raiding it after they arrested him. Um, but he's still he's still not dead. For some reason, he doesn't have what he truly wants. So he's still charming and swindling creditors, but the you know they're starting to close in the ones that he does owe, as are the insurance companies. So um, he leaves Chicago for a little bit, lets the heat die down, ends up in Fort Worth at the property that Minnie gave to him. Uh, for some reason there, he tried to pay, build another structure. Didn't pay anyone, so they didn't build it because they were smarter. Weird how that happens. Yeah. Uh, he ends up in Missouri a couple months later. He's arrested for a hot second because he was selling mortgaged goods to people. Well, I don't know what that means. But I think that, you know, somebody else had owned those items, perhaps. It's like stolen goods, I think. Uh, while he was in jail for that hot second, he made friends with a Marion Hedgepeth, and they formulated a plan to have Marion fake his death for the insurance payout of $10,000. Holmes was like, cool, I will promise you $500 in exchange like for a trusted lawyer we can loop in. And so the lawyer he recommended was this creature called Jephtha Howe. And... They were like, cool, we're going to make this work. Didn't work. Marion, like, either backed out or just disappeared. So Jephtha and Holmes approached Pizel with this same thing. And Pizel was like, perfect. Let's go do it in Philadelphia. And I will say that I am B.F. Perry and I am an inventor and we can create a setup where it looks like I died in the lab explosion. Um... And they were like, great. Holmes is like, cool, I'll get a, a body. I'll go rob a grave. We'll toss it in there. We'll pretend it's you. Golden. The lawyer will oversee everything. We're chilling. Um, but for some reason, Holmes didn't go get a cadaver. He just decided to kill Paisel. So he knocked him out with chloroform and then set him on fire with a benzene and a flame. So the live explosion was real. Um, I guess Holmes just didn't want to pay out in thirds. Also, um, this is something that I found, but it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. So I'm going to read it to you and you tell me what you think. Uh, forensic evidence in the case against Holmes indicated that Paisal was chloroformed after he died. Why would you chloroform somebody after they died? Try to make it look different than it was. Fair. Still odd. Still a weird way to go. Yeah. Um, some people speculated it was so Holmes could claim that Paisal committed suicide. But that it, that just doesn't track. Um, but he got, got the money. And at this point, he's like, oh, Paisal's married. He's got three kids. I'm going to start working on this lady and see what I can get out of her. For some reason... He said, hey, let me have custody of your children. Alice, Nellie, and Howard. For some reason, she fucking agrees. They all go on this grand trip between Canada and the United States using aliases the whole time and saying that, you know, Holmes is telling her, oh, your husband's fine. We're going to go meet him, blah, blah, blah. And he's just dragging them all over the country. What's interesting is that they weren't actually traveling together. So it's Holmes with the three kids, Paisal's wife with, I think, their other two kids. They are on the same 
path, but they're not traveling in groups together. Does that make sense? So he's kind of, he's got these children for some reason, and he's sending her on this whole other wild goose chase. It's super weird. Um, it just didn't make sense. Um, while they are traveling, Holmes has already killed Alice and Nellie. He just shoved them in a big trunk and locked them in there. Drilled a hole in the trunk and then attached a hose to the hole and attached the other end of the gas line. Um, he then buried them in the basement of his rental house in Toronto, Canada. Which is just like... I don't know if he was trying to use them for collateral or threatening her or like what the whole gain of that was. Kids don't have any money. So the only other thing that pops into my head is that he did that whole insurance scam bullshit. So, um, at this point, uh, Philadelphia police detective Frank Geyer is assigned to start investigating Holmes and try to figure out why the fuck he has custody of these three fucking children that nobody's seen and what the fuck is going on. Um, he gets to the point where he catches up to the trail of Holmes and he, you know, is investigating the rental house in Toronto, Canada, and he finds the girls' bodies in the basement. And after the body, after he finds the bodies, he follows Holmes to Indianapolis, where, you know, Holmes has reportedly rented another cottage and has been seen visiting a local pharmacy to buy drugs. Um, he's also seen at a repair shop to sharpen some knives. And so a lot of people think that the drugs were used kill the boy and the knives were used to dismember him and which were then burned in the rented cottage like chimney and that's where they found fragments of the boy's remains um but somehow Holmes got all the way back to Boston before they caught up with him and like caught him um he was arrested for an outstanding horse thief warrant from Texas whatever it takes it's just um and they had to be very careful with the investigation because they had found out that he was prepping to leave the country. So they've got these bodies. They start investigating his building, uh, but they can't find anything in the building to convict him at this point. But they did have enough to try him for the murder of Benjamin Paisal, his buddy. So he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Um... After that, for some reason, he admits to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. Some of those people he admitted to murdering were still alive, which was weird. Um, he was paid $7,500 for his confession by Hearst Newspapers, but they paid him first, which was dumb, because then when they published it and they did some fact-checking, they are like, oh, most of this is lies. I also didn't realize you could collect money like that when you're in jail, but I don't know. Um, thankfully, he was hanged on May 7th in 1896 at Moya Mensing Prison for some... No, I don't remember why. Okay, he asked for his coffin to be encased in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was worried about grave robbers, which is ironic because he was a grave robber. It's just... Can't. Um, when he was hanged, his neck didn't break, so he died slowly of asphyxiation, which took approximately 15 to 20 minutes. Bummer. Mm, so big of a bummer. Uh, 
in 2017, his body was exhumed because it was widely believed that he actually escaped the gallows, which I just don't know. I think it was also to run some more DNA on the Jack the Ripper stuff. Um, but they opened the coffin. Obviously, his body was in there. But because it was encased in cement, he didn't decompose like he would have if he was just in like a regular coffin. So his clothes were still mostly intact. And so was his mustache. It's impressive. Yeah. And they identified him by his teeth. Um, yep, I already talked about that. So most people have the theory that H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper are the same person because there is a boat manifest out there that has the name H.H. Holmes traveling from the UK to the US. And he looked similar to the Jack the Ripper descriptions, you know, plus it it adds to the legend. But um, Holmes is a very popular last name. H.H. could have been anything. It's not enough. So... Also, he was often depicted as a torture killer like Jack, but once you like deep, deep dive into him, he's a money motivated killer. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't track. There's nothing for him in brutally murdering people if there's no money involved. Mm-hmm. What's that payday? Yeah. So that's H.H. Holmes. That's the very weak connection that people tie between him and Jack the Ripper. We are. 33 pages in of notes out of 40. Um, We are going to stop here because I am tired. (laughs) So tired. Crime is tired. Um, And in this next segment, which will be the last of the Ripper full segments, I will tell Dr. Manhattan about a bunch of shitty human beings who have committed murders and were ripper style murderers i'm doing air quotes again because while i was putting the notes in some of these are not ripper style murderers you will hear me talk about that as i read my notes to you because that's what i do so yes we are going to go make dinner turn off our brains and make sure we have all of this recorded because that would be very sad okay we do uh until next week my creepy lovelies, join us for the final saga of Jack the Ripper. The last Ripper song. The last Ripper song. Kind of. With the mini, mini minis. Okay. We're leaving now. Goodbye.